Welcome back into the Original Gangsters Podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. My normal partner in crime, the resident doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato, is out for uh, the week, but uh, we're going to hold it down for him. And we have a great guest. We're going to talk uh, the Chicago mob. We're going to talk Joey the Clown Lombardo, Frank the German Weiss, uh, the Grand Avenue crew, the Chicago Heights crew, and, and the porn industry in Chicago in, in, the, hey, in the heyday of the outfit and, and the mobs of vice grip on, on the sex rackets. I want to bring in uh, William Red Wamet, who is uh, an author, a blogger, a, a YouTuber, uh, one of the, uh, the best federal uh, witnesses for the government in, in the war against the Chicago Mafia over the last 20, 25 years, or I would say 30 years uh, with, with testimony, I believe. Um, Red, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here. So, Red, why don't we just give people just a quick, uh, give people a, you know, maybe a, a two-minute uh, bio of uh, Red Wamet and, uh, you know, as a outfit associate, as a guy that was um, in charge of, of some of the uh, um, uh, rated X movie theater porn shop type places uh, in Old Town, um, just, you know, let people know uh, your history. Well, let's start in the beginning then. Uh, back in 1968, I got associated with Milwaukee Phil, uh, Tony Spalacho, the Grand Avenue crew. Yep. And that was through uh, Jimmy Couture. In 1971, August of 1971, I approached the FBI and became a confidential informant. My purpose for doing that was to stop some of the murders that were going on. I didn't like them. I didn't like people getting killed for nothing. That's what I wrote about my book. Nobody cares and what I did about it. Yeah, the name of Red's book. Nobody cares and what I did about it. The Red Wilmette story in the Chicago outfit. Um, and there is no question in the 1970s and 1980s, there were a lot of bodies dropping in Chicago. Uh, you mentioned Jimmy the Bomber Katora. Uh, in the 70s, he was in charge of a uh, an outfit takeover of the, uh, of the stolen car rackets uh, called the Chop Shop Wars. He eventually lost right. his life in, in that uh, ten-year uh, power struggle um, to, to take over the stolen car business. And um, but the other guy, so so you met Jimmy Guitar. He wasn't with the Chicago Heights guys. He was with the West Side guys at that point. No, he was uh, with the Heights, and we were actually Kurt Hansen and I were doing uh, slot machines. We were putting him in uh, Chicago Heights, East Chicago, Indiana, anywhere around the uh, the mills. Okay, you know the steel mills. Yep. For Jimmy Katura. And we were, we were doing this with Jimmy Katura. And then, I don't know, I went to the north side and Jimmy told me to. He said, uh, go see Joey. He's a nicer boy. He'll take care of you. <laughs> and then we're talking about Joey Lombardo. Right. And so I went to the north side and um, I started attending bar in these different places. Uh, They're all uh, buy the lady a drink, sir. Big girl joints. And uh, while I was working there, a uh, one of the bartenders was talking to him. He wasn't talking to him. The FBI agent approached him and we were told if an FBI agent approaches you, be nice to him, but don't talk to him. Don't be rude to him. Just don't talk to him. So the other bartender took his card, his business card and threw it in the trash. I put it in my pocket. And when I went home, I called the FBI. And then from there on, it went to, I don't know. I, I quit the bartending and, um, started building a, uh, from scratch, a building to um, uh, sell pornography out of. And uh, that's when I got in touch with Marshall Cofano. Marshall Cofano was assigned to me by uh, Joey Lombardo. And Phil Alderisco had defeated by then. Red, go backwards for one second. Let everyone know where you um, held that first meeting uh, with the FBI. That was held at the Lincoln Park Zoo in the Lion House. <laughs> right. And... Um, I actually set the meeting place. Used to live right in, uh, in front of the Lincoln Park Zoo, so I know exactly where this is. I, use, I I actually set the meeting place, the time, and everything else. It was all set on my conditions, and um, I was very cautious. Uh, I didn't know, you know, if they were just going to grab me, scoop me up, and put me in jail or whatever, you know. So um, I kind of held it uh, pretty close to the vest. My cards close to the vest on that one, but it worked out fine. I met John Osborne. He was my first control agent, and we agreed 
that he would not pass me around like a whore to other people. He would just keep it between him and me, disseminate all the information that I gave him when I called him. They had no way of reaching me at any time. Kind of explain some of the nuts and bolts, excuse the expression, of the uh, pornography industry. I mean, there, it, it, there really, well, there was one, I guess, in the 50s and 60s, but by the 70s and 80s, it was kind of going to another level. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, it was. That's very accurate. And also it changed during the 70s through to the 80s. Right. From uh, film to tape. Well, we went, we went from uh, film and magazines were different too. Uh, don't forget Hustler came out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a major, major change in a lot of things. Yep. Uh, Larry Flint. As a matter of fact, we all had to go down to Cincinnati on that one. But um, it was, we were told we had to buy Hustler. That was it. You know, we just had to buy it. We just uh, referenced the Chop Shop Wars. Well, in the uh, pornography magazine business, there was the pubic wars in the 1970s between Playboy, Penthouse, and, and Hustler, kind of each trying to um, push the envelope a little further in, in what they showed in terms of naked women. You got that right. Yeah. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> it was very different. Everything was evolving. The 70s were evolving. And... Um, Really, the, it wasn't a, a federal crime. It was a um, obscenity was left up to the eyes of the community that you lived in, community standards. So it wasn't a breaking a federal law. It was breaking a state law or a local law. I was in the city of Chicago. But then again, when I opened up, I got a license right away, an adult entertainment use license. And that license number was 00001. <laughs> I got the first one. And this was an industry that was 100% controlled by organized crime. Is that true? Not 100%, but it was controlled. And what wasn't controlled, um, they would either burn you out or kill you. So you opened up shop in Old Town, which now and has been for the last 20, 25 plus years, is like a very upscale, uh, yuppie, a lot of... um, uh, college kids that, that leave college, get big time jobs, uh, in the Chicago, um, uh, business world, move into old town. There's lots of uh, bars and restaurants, but back in the seventies and eighties, old town was a little seedier. It was very seedy. It was, uh, basically, uh, kind of a ghetto where I, I bought my buildings. Uh, the first one I bought was at 1345 Wells and, it was very seedy then. It was uh, across the street. Uh, Dr. Scholes had moved out of the of the uh, and moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and that building was empty. And most when I bought the first building I bought, it had uh, it was empty, and there was um, uh, Puerto Rican people that had lived there before me, and they had. Um, uh, what do you call it, uh, palms up and all different kinds of religious things left up. And there were cockroaches, and it was really a bad neighborhood. I mean, a very bad neighborhood. And we, we were only like maybe four or five blocks from Karini Green, so it was rough. Yeah, and there's there was some history not that far from, well, there's a lot of history in Chicago, but in terms of pop culture in that area, you had at that time, Within semi walking, or definitely within walking distance, you had Second City, uh, John Belushi. Oh, Second City was four doors away from me, on the same side of the street. They moved it over the years. They moved it, but I actually watched people work in Second City that went to Saturday Night Live. Right, all those SNL early SNL guys got their start at, at Second City, and uh, there was a lot of kind of counterculture going on in, in that area. And then also just to uh, dovetail into the. Uh, pornography industry that we're talking about, um, you were semi-walking distance from the Playboy Mansion. I had walked to the Playboy Mansion with Marshall Cofano several times. Yeah, the original Playboy Mansion. For listeners that might be a little younger, that they only know about the Playboy Mansion in L.A. and the Holmby Hills, the famous one, but back in the 60s and 70s, Playboy, you know, ground zero for the Playboy empire was uh, off State Street uh, in the Gold Coast. Uh, they had their own Playboy mansion in Chicago. Yes, and they, they ran a television show out of there called Playboy After, After Dark. Dark. Right. So I was there a couple times. 
not really interested. Marshall asked me to go with him. Marshall actually wanted to extort Playboy. He wanted to extort Playboy. I was going to say, I, I was, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, that I, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't heard more stories over the years of the outfit trying to cut in to Hefner. I mean, I know he left town by 75 uh, under a cloud of uh, suspicion and, a, and some drug investigations into some, some suspicious uh, overdoses and murders of some uh, employee playboy bunnies that were possibly moving drugs for him and died under suspicious, some suspicious circumstances. He was Hefner himself was kind of public enemy number one for, for the uh, state uh, of Illinois and the federal government back then. Uh, that was all to get, to put the arm on him. Yep. Uh, that was all things. It, it was coordination with the police and it was to put the arm on uh, Hefner. But uh, the truth of the matter is, he took the right move. He left. He, like the same thing as Larry Schmidt. He moved out west. Yep. Much more accepting culture in, in on the West Coast. Uh, much more progressive and very liberal. Yeah. Very liberal. So let, let let's let's color in some of these um, characters that that you're around. So you you kind of started underneath uh, Jimmy Katora, who was Chicago Heights. For people that don't know the landscape of the Chicago mob, the Chicago Heights crew uh, was uh, right by the Indiana border, controlled a lot of the uh, rackets going on in, in uh, or all the rackets going on in, in northwest Indiana. Uh, he me- Red mentioned a bunch of, of factories. It was, you know, the border is Geary, Indiana, uh, Hammond, uh, Calumet, some of those areas, uh, East Chicago. That's where all those steel mills were. Right, all those steel mills. Yeah. So you go from that area, and now you're in the kind of the Grand, uh, Grand Avenue crew, uh, which is sometimes – dovetails with the Northside crew. Now it's the same crew, but back then they were two separate crews. Actually, we dovetailed in because I worked at different bars. And what they would do, I really worked for the outfit because they tell me which bar to go to. It might be on Rush Street. It might be on Wells Street. You know, whatever bar they wanted me to go to, I went to for that night. So in 1973, two things happened in, in that uh relate to the people that you were hanging around with reporting to 1973 you have uh or around that time period you have marshall cafano joey shoes or johnny shoes rather um returning from las vegas uh coming back to chicago after having kind of been uh stationed um out west looking after the chicago outfits interests um in las vegas and, and, and in california he returns. And not exactly, Scott. Okay, tell me. Not correct exactly. Me. Correct because, me. Because uh, he had just done, he did 10 years in prison for the extortion of Ray Ryan. And he just got out of prison, came back to Chicago, and he thought he had it made because Sam Giancana was uh, having an affair with his wife, Darlene. Yep. And he told me, oh, it'll be all right. But everything had changed. I mean, Sam Giancana was not in any kind of power at all. He wasn't even there. So between Vegas and returning to Chicago, uh, Marshall had done t- a time in prison for the for the uh, Ray Ryan bombing. No, for the extortion of Ray Ryan. He went up to Ray Ryan and told him, "For a million dollars a year, I'll let you live." And then eventually, Ray Ryan got blown up in a car, right in Evansville, Indiana. In 1979, that yeah. deal was made. Um, he he asked for permission to do it earlier. They wouldn't let him. But um, when he um, set up Richard Kane at Rosie's Sandwich Shop, um, they let they gave him the okay afterwards to uh, murder Ray Ryan. Yeah, Richard Kane was a police officer and, and made member of the mob that got gunned down. On Grand Avenue. Right, in the heart of that yeah. West Side crew, uh, the epicenter of that, of that regime. So around the same time, you have Joey the Clown Lombardo, definitely one of the most colorful and deadly figures in, in the history of the mafia, not just Chicago, but in all of America. He gets promoted to couple regime of the West side, replacing Fifi Milwaukee Bucheri. Phil. Well, Milwaukee Phil and Fifi Bucheri, who had ran that town. Okay. Around that. Well, well, Phil f- was really in there in 60. 60- well, Phil became the boss. Yeah, but he was also boss of that crew. Right, right, right. So he, he kind of suggested Joey to be his replacement before he died in prison. Didn't Marshall think he was going to get that job? Yeah, he did. And he became Joey's advisor. That's mm-hmm. all. It was kind of a step down for him. So, but at this time is when you're, and then let's also not forget, <laughs> these are two pretty formidable uh, individuals in their own right in terms of uh, a body count when we're talking about Johnny Shoes 
Cofano and Joey the Clown Lombardo. But then they also had their own their own version of Luca Brasi, uh, Brasi from from The Godfather. His name was Frank the German Schweiss, one of the um, most lethal and sociopathic individuals ever to walk the streets of uh, of Chicago. Um, and he was, you know, he was their muscle, um, among other things. So these were three very powerful, very <laughs> dangerous um, individuals that you were kind of clicked up with. And they were overseeing, tell me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, overseeing your pornography business. That's correct. When I was building it, Marshall used to come in every day. I didn't know who he was at first, just a little old man, 68 years old. He used to come in every day and um, just walk around, look at things. And I was told by other people not to pay any attention to him until he started talking to me and he got to know me real well. He took a liking to me like the other guys did. It took a while for him to warm up to me. Joey was younger at that point. Joey was what, in his 40s, 50s? Yeah, he's born in 38, so 48, 58, 68, in his late to mid-30s. Yeah, so what kind of figure did he cut at that time? Like, I know he had a lot of love from the from the OGs, if you will, the Tony Accardos of the world, uh, had a lot of, a lot of faith in, in, in the clown. Um, the, the name, the nickname kind of hides the fact that although he was very, he was a wisecracker, he was, he was quirky, and he was uh, someone that was, uh, you know, funny and told a lot of jokes. That's why he got the nickname, the clown, but he was very savvy and, and someone who was very capable. He wasn't pathological. Right. He wasn't pathological. Some of the people around him were right. And he knew how to handle people. Actually, he knew how to handle me. He was a politician. Oh yeah. He whistled me in one time, one time he whistled me in and, um, that turned out very easy. Uh, my father had, uh, opened up a game shop in Whoop. And because my father knew I was connected, he um, used Joey's name when he bought the games at uh, Empire, or um, I, I think it was Empire Distributors, uh, where they had the uh, um, all those pinball machines and mm-hmm. video games Arcades. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, and they put it on Joey's account. <laughs> and so he whistled me in and said, what are you trying to do, expand into the loop, Gussie Alex's territory, right. Apex? And I said, no. I said, I'm not. I said, that's my dad. And he said, get on the phone, shut down all your businesses right now. And at that time, I had five businesses running. Yeah. And so I, I got them all shut down. And um, uh, he said, call your dad now. And he says, make sure that those two are shut down in the loop. And so I called my dad, and he uh, he said to me, uh, he said, the hell with them, Dagos. He said, I'm not shutting down anything. Wow. And uh, Marshall went and paid him a visit. And uh, he stuck a gun in Marshall's ribs. And so Joey was telling me about this. And while he was telling me about it, uh, after it was all over, I shut everything down. He said, go ahead, open everything up. And he walked me out to my car. And when he did, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, don't, don't feel bad. He said, we can't be responsible for what our parents do. <laughs> and I didn't know if they were going to kill my dad or if they're just going to let it go. Yeah. And they did. They let it go. He was lucky. Believe it or not, a low echelon, but I had a lot of respect because I never lied to those guys. Never lied from, never stole from, ever. So I'm interested in your take on a, I know you've seen it because I saw you chime in on social media. There was a recent posting on a social media site or on Facebook of some court documents related to Joey Lombardo's murder conviction. So Joey the Clown was eventually indicted uh, in 2005 um, after he had, he had done 10 years in prison for um, bribery and uh, casino skimming. The first time he, that I know of the great indictment was the Danny Seaford murder in 1974. That was the team skim. Right. So he was indicted. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So uh, okay. 82 to 92, he serves uh, federal prison time, comes out in 92, becomes uh, not just yet before he was the West Side Capo. Eventually he gets bumped to consigliere. Um, some people say he was street boss for a, for a, a period of time, acting boss. Uh, but by 2005, he's indicted in the Operation Family Secrets case. 18 murders dating back to the early 1970s are charged him and um, at that time the acting boss Jimmy Marcello and a uh, Southside crew boss by name Frankie uh, Calabrese are the 
the big headliners in, in the case. Um, and one of those 18 murders is, is related to Danny Seifert, the, the name that uh, Red just brought up. In 1974, Danny Seifert was a business partner of Joey Lombardo, was a close friend of Joey Lombardo, named his son Joey after Joey Lombardo. Um, but he got jammed up in this uh, Teamsters pension fraud case with Lombardo over a, um, I believe it was it was a uh, company out in New Mexico. Deming, New Mexico. Yeah. It was uh, the Plastic Pail Company. Right. Him and uh, Irv Weiner and Tony Spilaccio really ran it together. And then Billy got involved in it later. Spilaccio, I'm, I'm guessing most of you know this, but I'll throw it out there for anyone who doesn't. Spilaccio was the Joe Pesci character in the movie Casino. It was called Nicky Santoro in the film, but in real life, he was Tony Spilaccio. And Danny Seifert was weeks away from taking the stand in a trial. No, he was only a few days away. A few days away. He was only a few days away, Scott. Yeah. And he uh, he decided that he'd, he'd gone before the grand jury. Yep. And he told everybody, you know, that he was associated with, that he wasn't going down for income tax evasion. Yep. And he would cooperate with the government. He was only 29 years old at the time. Yes. And this was a very, very brutal, heinous gangland style hit, not to say that, you know, they all are, but some are more than others. And this took place one morning, uh, I believe it was the fall of 74. And it took place in front of uh, Danny Seifert's uh, widow and his young son. Um, and it was a, a, a hit team um, made up of most likely uh, Tony Spilatro, <laughs> Frank the German, a number of other people, uh, and, 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 Joey, and Joey Lombardo, was convicted of being there as well. He actually organized it. Joey actually organized that. Hit. Yes, I, I have no doubt that he did. And um, he was also, uh, they, they found a, a fingerprint of his on the car rental uh, papers for the, for the getaway car. And then he made some comments to some confidants of his the next morning when he was on the golf course teen off uh, saying something along the lines of uh, that motherfucker won't be testifying against anyone now. Uh, case was dropped. Yeah, he told that to Johnny Rogers. Johnny right. Rogers told the same thing to me. Yep. So um, just in the last week, uh, someone who has an interest in this case for whatever reason, I'm, I haven't exactly figured out what his motive is, but um, posted some pleadings that, that Lombardo hand wrote um, in the months before he died, uh, Lombardo died in, in, in the fall of 2019. In the summer of 19, he wrote a pleading um, trying to explain that there was a eyewitness to the Seaford case that, that exonerated him um, and that he was unaware of this eyewitness until the last couple of years of his life, but that his attorney at trial, Rick Halperin, had been aware of this guy by the name of uh, Charles Chuck Maselli, who's a convicted felon himself. Um, Chucky Maselli, yeah. Yeah, and um, Chucky claims when he was a young boy, he saw the hit took place and that, it, that Joey Lombardo had nothing to do with it. In fact, it was a uh, former uh, dirty, uh, a dirty Chicago police officer by the name of Richard uh, Mad Magia, who was kicked off the force in 1981 for selling uh, silencers. And um, yeah. my initial reaction is even let's just for argument's sake, play the game and just say that you can exonerate, meaning Chuck Maselli, saying that you can exonerate Joey from being at the scene of the crime. That doesn't remove the fact that if he wasn't at the scene of the crime, he was still pulling strings. I mean, he was he still was orchestrating the murder. So Correct. I don't really put much weight in, in, in what Maselli's saying, but I'm interested in, in getting your take. Joey was desperate to get out. I mean, he wanted to get out worse than anything. Um, it was a terrible place that he went to. Um, Florence is probably a... Yeah, he was in Superman. An inhumane prison. Yeah, he was in very, the Yeah, very inhumane prison. But uh, Joey was just desperate. He was 90 years old. Uh, he was trying to get out. And um, I'm sure it wasn't 
at all any in any way pleasant for him being there. But um, on a legal standpoint, he was grasping at straws. He really he really didn't have anything. That's why they shot his appeals down because they weren't really worth it. Well, who is? Do you know who Chuck Maselli is? Yeah, I do. Is he a guy that you were familiar with back in when you were on the streets? I saw him a few times. Yeah, so I I don't really get what his he motive. He did a lot of time himself. No, he, I, he I know. A lot of time himself. And he's known as a you know a con man in terms of yeah. his like uh, his signature. Would he stand up and, for Joey? Yes, he would. Would he lie for Joey? Yes, he would. But he, he's saying he was eight years old and he was somehow at the, the factory. Well, that's what I mean. He wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't know if Richard Medeja, I'm not sure if he's alive or yeah. not. Um, the only reason I even put his name in my story was because it's it's mentioned in the pleading and the fact that he had been uh, kicked off the Chicago police force. So there wasn't a reputation really to it. <laughs> his reputation had already been impugned. There was another guy that he that he referenced that I did not put out his name because I could not find any criminal record on that guy. I believe that that was the person that Joey claimed he was at the... Uh, police station with? At the police station, he'd lost his wallet. Yeah, that was Lombardo's, and, for everyone to know, that was Lombardo's alibi that at the time that, right. that Seifert was going down, he was actually at a Chicago police department uh, putting in a, a uh, report on a stolen wallet. That's correct. I know that... At the very end, in terms of when Lombardo was on the street, that uh, he was working at a tool and dye shop and they uh, got a warrant to test his saliva for DNA that they had had, uh, that they suspected that potentially a cigarette butt that um, he had smoked on the day of the crime they found in the car. I'm not sure if they were ever able to trace that DNA to him, but I know they tested it. They weren't. They were not able to. Okay. to- uh, confirm it, but they confirmed other things. Um, actually, the best, probably the most damning evidence was that Emma Seifert really recognized him, but she didn't want to go to the police all those years because she knew uh, they had an association with the outfit. Uh, her her brother-in-law was uh, a bookmaker, and he worked with Irv Weiner. That's how Danny got his first job. Yep. And really, honestly, I have to say this in Joey's defense, really. Um, he actually saved Emma Seaford and little Joe Seaford's lives. He kind of pushed them off into the bathroom while the other guys actually shot. Uh, Frank Schweiss, muscle, um, actually shot Danny Seaford. And the first shot was in the face, I believe, while they were struggling. Yeah, and then they finished him off with a shot to the, like a tap to the head from behind, I believe. That was uh, Frank Schweiss. He told me about that. And, uh, well, that's quite a story to, to tell someone that wasn't involved in it. But um, when Mrs. Seifert testified, I was at the trial. I covered it for uh, for writing one of my first books called Family Affair, Greed, Treachery, and Betrayal in the Chicago Mafia. <laughs> Shameless plug there. But, um, and I covered it. I covered the trial for Chicago Magazine as well. She testified that although she couldn't, identify his face because Lombardo had his, had a mask on that uh, she recognized him from the way he moved. He had a ski mask and she recognized his voice, but yeah. she never said anything. Right. She never said anything all those years. And it would look bad on the stand if she was, she would have been a bad witness if she would have got on the stand and said, well, I've known all these years that it was him, but I didn't want to say anything because I was in fear for my life. Yep. Why don't you think that, I'm jumping all over the place here, but uh, why was there never a Family Secrets 2? There was all these rumors that there was going to be a second indictment coming down after the uh, 07 verdict that 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 uh, convicted most of the counts in, in the Family Secrets case. Johnny No-Nose DeFranzo, who was the longtime boss of the Chicago outfit, a very close um, ally of, of, of Joey Lombardo, was implicated by a lot of evidence that he was involved in, um, in murders, uh, that, that, and that evidence came out in family secrets, but he never had to account for it. Do you, do you have a, a theory on that? Oh, I have a good opinion. Yeah. Uh, it might be a theory to you, but, um, the only reason there was going to be a family secrets too, was because of no, no's, uh, Don, Johnny DeFranzio. 
And he was an FBI informant. Yep, that's what I believe. He, he was an informant for the FBI. Yep. And the second reason was they wanted to try Frank Schweiss, but he had brain cancer, and his he was deteriorating very rapidly, very, very rapidly. And um, when he died, all the secrets went to the grave with him. That's why there was no family secrets, too. So they gave, in essence, they gave DeFranzo a free pass for participating in, at the very least, the Spilato brothers' murder, which, again, was uh, for, for fans of the, the film Casino, Martin Scorsese's Casino in 1995, they, they show that murder. They cut him a pass on being there at the house. He was at the house in Bentonville. He was up in the living room. He coordinated the whole thing. He captained the whole thing yeah. from, from the testimony of Nick Calabrese, who was the star witness of the trial. Yes. He was upstairs. He was, I don't know all the people that were upstairs, but he was upstairs and he was in the living room. And Tony and Mikey went in and had, um, allegedly, went in and had uh, drinks with him. They were drinking scotch. Yep. And uh, the remnants were found in their stomachs later, alcohol, whatever. They knew what it was. But anyway, he softened them up. And said, okay, now let's go down and, uh, and get to the ceremony. And as they were walking down the stairs, they were brutally murdered. Yeah, the lore for the Spilato brothers at that time was a making ceremony for Tony Spilato's younger brother, Mikey, or Mickey. And he was... And Tony would become a cop. Yeah, Tony was going to get a promotion. If you I mean again, anyone that saw the movie, did, that movie did a very good job of, of uh, showing how out of control... Um, Spilato had gotten in Las Vegas. Uh, he was there for 15 years and um, a lot of bodies, a lot of headlines, a lot of waves, and uh, was talking to, talking openly. I want to get your take on this as well. Talking openly on his desire to kill his way to the top of the outfit. Um, and a lot of that scuttlebuck, in addition to the, the mounting legal problems for everybody, made its way back to Chicago. He was summoned for for that uh, that ruse of a making ceremony in the summer of '86, and uh, they murdered him. Um, do you did you hear that that Spilatro was talking to people about you know staging a coup? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, he knew there was going to be a vacuum uh, because of the casino skims and. Um, because of the vacuum, he thought he was going to go back to Chicago and take Joey Lombardo's place. Now, this is the this is the question that I've been been teeing it up the whole time. I want to get your take on because I I heard from one of not one of the, my best source when it comes to the outfit. Um, I don't want to give his name, but he's a former high ranking member. Okay, and uh, he told me. I asked him one of the first times I was with him, I said, what do you think happens if Joey Lombardo isn't in prison in 1986? Does he stop the Spilato brothers from getting murdered? And I remember we were eating at an, an Italian restaurant, and he was like in the middle of <laughs> putting pasta into his mouth. And he was so eager to answer, he he spit out the answer while the food was going in his mouth. And he said, uh, no, they would have killed him. It's kind of like me right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, again, with, with, little, with no hesitation and very emphatically, no, Lombardo would have been killed with them. No, no. Nobody would have killed Joey. Joey would have, uh, Joey would have gathered together his people. And he had some real heavy hitters like Twice and yep. other people. And he would have definitely foiled it. Joey and Tony were very close. See, that's what I believe. And I, I, I found that coming from the guy, I, I had to give it some weight because this guy had been around all the top guys. You can bet on it. You can bet on it, guy. So I, I tend to agree with you, but I was interested to get your take on, on that one person's opinion. When I, when I asked him to expand on it, he says that he believes that Lombardo would have made a, a fuss about not killing the Spilatros and that he would have Car Carlisi was so uh helping wings didn't have that kind of power yeah Joey had too many people behind him I don't I, I'm I, mean, a, he, I agree he with took you care of his, he took care of his own people it's a Grand Anagin crew I was surprised to hear that from that person so had he not been in prison he would have had an army 
Wings wouldn't have had a chance. And he would have stood up for him. Oh, yeah, definitely. Do you think if he was out in 80, uh, when that uh, power shift was was occurring and uh, Joey Ayupa and, and uh, Jackie Cerrone, who were the acting boss? and I believe that was June of 82, wasn't it? Well, they didn't actually. They got indi- they got indicted in in eighty two or eighty three. They didn't actually go to prison until eighty six. Yeah, June of eighty two. They actually murdered, uh, uh, or eighty six rather. They actually murdered uh, Tony. Right. So Splatos were killed in in June of eighty six. Uh, Ayupa and Cerrone reported to prison right after New Year's, so first week of January eighty six. Right. Do you believe that if Lombardo's on the street, he takes over? Oh yeah, definitely. Instead of Carlisi and. Um, Furiola? Definitely. Definitely. And do you think Furiola, was Furiola, was Furiola ever a real boss? When he went to prison the first time, he was street boss. If you you look at the Last Supper picture yeah. where he's in a suit and he's standing with all those guys, yep. that was to let everybody know who he was. He was going to settle all the problems on the street. The Last Supper photo is a very, very historic image that was um, – taken by the FBI in a in a raid and it's from 1976 I believe and it's all of the most powerful outfit OGs of the, uh, of that time Tony Accardo and all of his top lieutenants um and then there is this young Joey Lombardo so it's all these guys in their 60s and 70s and then there's Lombardo and casual clothes and very casual and Joey's dressed in a suit and tie Right, and uh, Lombardo is in his, you know, thirties, uh, forties, late, late thirties, um, at that time. <laughs> Let's get back to the to the trial for a second, and um, we talked a little bit about this off air, but I want to, I want you to give your opinion on. Um, so you testified at Family Secrets. Yes, I did. Lombardo decided that he wanted to testify. He was the only. Was he the only? I'm trying to. No. The no, Cal- Calabri- the only Calabrese testified as well. Right? Yeah, he they, they both knew they were going down, so yeah, why yeah. not go down fighting? So Lombardo decides to take the stand, and in my opinion, that was a critical, critical error because I'm in the courtroom, and the trial took three and a half months, so it was, it was laborious. And in the first month or month and a half before Joey takes the stand, his little clown act was working in the courtroom. He was making wisecracks. The jury was, the jury was liking him. Actually, I joked uh, with him. We talked about this, you and I did. Yeah. When uh, Mitch Mars came, approached me, he said, do you see Mr. Lombardo in the courtroom? And I looked around over at the defense table. It was packed with people. There were too many lawyers there and other people. I did not see him. And so he brought me over a photograph taken many years ago and um, many years before that and showed it to me. And I looked at the photograph for a minute, and as I did that, Joey stood up. And when he stood up, he smiled at me and he winked. And I couldn't believe the shell of a man. He'd just gone through a heart surgery. And I looked at him and I said, that's him over there. But he looked a whole lot better the last time I saw him. <laughs> and the court cracked up and we had to take a break. But Joey, that throughout the, I mean, he was really, he was charming the, he was charming the. I was surprised he winked at me. I was really surprised he went to me. He was charming the jury. He was charming the, the press pool. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, this will not play on the stand. This plays in little 10-second snippets. This will not play over multiple hours on the stand. And he insisted on, on, on uh, testifying, and he was on the stand for two days. And very, very quickly, the, the clown act, just wore super thin and he sounded like a lying old man <laughs> and it wasn't cute anymore. It wasn't cute no. and quirky anymore. You could see how desperate he was. Yeah. And so getting back to the, that photo, so they ask him, you know, that's you in that photo, right? And you're with all, the, cause, cause he was, he was claiming he was, he still was claiming that he had, uh, no, right. these were, these were just his, his, his close friends and, they just were people that he was associated with socially and had had no business interests with whatsoever. And uh, they said, well, "Well, what were you doing there?" He's like, "Well, I was I was in the restaurant and I happened to be having a drink and I saw these guys, so I just came over and said hi." Yeah, that wasn't going to fly. Right. Legally, it should have. Legally, it should have because all the people who were there were dead. Yeah. 
there's nobody could get out of there and say, well, no, he just stopped in or, or he didn't stop in or he was there the whole time. It just, it was guilt by association. The evidence was just, it was very thin against Lombardo. So I, I just, if, 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 you know, if I'm his attorney, I know you got to let your client on the stand if he wants to get on the stand. And Rick Halpern, in my opinion, by far was the best, was, was the superstar of that defense team. I do whatever I can to keep him off the stand because I think he has a puncher's <laughs> Joey was a former amateur boxer to use that now. I think he had a puncher's chance with the jury if he doesn't take the stand. But once he took the stand, it was it was all she wrote. Yeah. Well, it's it's worth mentioning, Scott, that uh he wanted to be severed from that trial. Right. And that could have that would have been a, he a, made a major tried difference. With as well. All these other people. well, Calabrese just killed everybody. Frank Calabrese was this we were talking about Frank Schweiss. The Calabrese family just took everybody down. Yeah. That was it. You know, Schweiss was a sociopath, and so was this Frank Calabrese. And, um, you know, he's the one Nick that was— Nick Calabrese. You no, know, Nick, Nick was the star witness. Or Frank His Jr. brother, Frank, was the, the one of the main defendants. And the reason it was called Family Secrets is because Frank Calabrese, who was one of the headlining defendants— was turned on by his, both his son and his brother. And they were the ones that wired up, uh, or the son wired up to make the case against the father and the uncle. And then the uncle, um, once the FBI was informed by his nephew that there was a, um, a bullet lodged in his uncle's shoulder from a, uh, a murder that took place after the Spilato, right, a month or two after the Spilato brothers were murdered. John Fecorato was murdered for not handling the burial of the, of the Spilato brothers well. Or he All the people who were there were almost murdered. Right. I think the only one that wasn't was uh, he went to prison. That was Albert Taco. But he really screwed it up bad. <laughs> so when, when the Calabrese brothers, Nick and Frank, are killing Fecorato, Fecorato is struggling with them. He was a big, big man, uh, had, had a gun on, his, on, on, or no, he had grabbed the gun that they were trying to shoot him with and then fired one off and it hit Nick in the shoulder. They eventually chased, Fagarata gets out of the car that they were in. They, he's running across the street on Berwyn. They chase him into a bingo hall and, you know, execute him in front of a crowd of people. Um, they were wearing uh, masks and, and gloves, but uh, as Nick Calabrese is running back to the getaway car, he drops one of his bloody gloves. Um, they didn't know whose glove that was or whose blood it was until Junior Calabrese comes forward and says, my uncle and my dad killed Fecorata, and while they were doing it, my uncle got shot in the shoulder. Uh, Jack O'Rourke and Tom Bourgeois, two great uh, uh, Chicago FBI agents that worked OC for, for decades, um, I would know Jack well. I yeah. know Jack very well. Uh, those guys have been great to me. Anyway, they show up at uh, at Calabrese's um, in prison cell and, and say, "We got a, we got a um, a uh, a court order for you to uh, take a uh, an X ray, and we know what we're going to find in your shoulder, and we know." Well, we they get... also took a DNA for the right. blood. I was going to say, and we're going to take your DNA, and we're going to know we're going to trace it to the. Uh, he knew he was dead right yeah. then. So then he becomes the first. First made guy. First made guy to testify. And um, as we were saying before, that the all the Calabrese family drama, um, and between the two brothers, between Nick and Frank, you had, I think, f over a dozen of the 18 murders charged. So they were oh, yeah. they were involved in the bulk of them. And it just made everyone else look really bad. And and uh, Jimmy Marcello and Joey Lombardo were only tied to one murder apiece. And in both of those cases, the, the the evidence was thin. Nonetheless, they were both convicted. Yeah, but they were they were involved in racketeering. Yes, and they were involved in other things. That was easily proven. Yes. So talk about organized crime, racketeering. I mean, those charges were easy to prove. Yep. Let's quote our own Joey the Clown Lombardo, one of the greatest quotes of all time. They can convict a cheeseburger under the RICO Act. Yes, I agree. Said, I agree with that. I mean, also, I, I agree when he turned around and said, uh, uh, you want to know who the bosses are in Chicago? The 50 aldermen. Right. He said, you got to go to them to get anything done. But they're not trying them here. They're trying us. Tell some war stories from, uh, you know, you were a very, very brave, brave man. And, and I love the title of your book, 
talk about wiring up and going face to face with the German and guys like that. I never wired up. Uh, what I did was I wired my apartment. Right. And um, I never wore a body wire. Okay. I never wore a body wire. My my word alone was very um, reputable with the FBI and the U.S. attorneys. So when I said something happened, it happened. Um, when I said I heard something from somebody, they somebody told me something, it happened. My word was my bond. The FBI trusted me, I understand, and uh, so the U.S. attorneys that I worked with. But we saw some of those video recordings the at, at the at the Family Secrets trial. I believe some of them were some at some of them were at the trial, and and some of them I I just gave to Adam, and he he did one on his YouTube channel. Okay, he remastered the old VHS into uh, into um, digital. Those recordings were very damning. A lot of them weren't played at the trial because. Pre-trial motions said, well, this has nothing to do with this. This has nothing to do with that. And therefore, we can't bring it in. What were your final memory? You, you left the street, what, in 88? September 15th, 1988. What are your final memories? Of the, talk about that those last couple of weeks or last month. Uh, do you, what are your memories of Lombardo and Schweiss and those guys? Well, yeah, Lombardo was in prison, I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah, Joey was in prison. And um, uh, Schweiss was indicted on the Hobbs Act for me. Uh, they couldn't get him on the murder charges because they didn't have any eyewitnesses, but he discussed murders with me on tape. So who's running the West Side in 88? Is it Jimmy Cozo? I was told that it was Louis Ebley until he died oh, in 87. Yeah. yeah, okay, Louis the Mooch. But uh, Jimmy told me that. Jimmy Cozo told me that. I was very close to Jimmy Boy. Okay. But um, uh, now they're saying that Jimmy was actually running it. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know when he was made because he wasn't made back then when I was there. What was Louis the Mooch like? An asshole. <laughs> he didn't like him? No. Was he a bull? No. Was he like a bully? Very arrogant. Um, he was greedy. Um, uh, Jimmy hated him. Jimmy Cozo hated him. He said he used to talk about that guy out west, that guy out west in Stone Park, you know? And Ebley's dad was a uh, was a godfather in New York City who was uh, murdered. In the Genovese family. Yeah, Tommy Ebley. And the Genovese family is very close to Chicago. Yep. They do trade-offs on a lot of things. And they did years ago. I mean, lots of them. So in, in 88, what did the structure look like? Ferriola, Carlisi, DeFranzo were kind of at the, the forefront? Actually, it was Joe Ferriola. And Frank, Frank Schweiss used to call him from my apartment. And this is somewhat of what I would hear on the conversation. He'd say, yeah, uh, he wouldn't say his name. He'd say, yeah, this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm going to do. I mean, he kind of gave orders to Joe. Right. And they called him Big Joe at the time. Yeah. And, and then he'd hang up the phone. And uh, there's visual proof of that in, my, in the tapes that I, I talked about. But the truth of the matter is, it was Joe was a figurehead. Yeah. He really, he didn't last long. He died of a heart attack. He was going to die soon. They knew it. It's kind of like Emily. Lost a lot of weight at the end. Oh, yeah. Look at pictures of him from the early 80s, and he was chunky. And you look at pictures of him when he was the boss at the end. He had, he had lost a lot of weight. He, he went, uh, he died on the on the operating table, I believe, down in Texas. Down in Texas. Yeah. So tell us about, uh, you know, the last 34 years. Is that right? 30, 34 oh, years. Oh, yeah. When I wasn't going in to identify surveillance photographs, yeah. um, I was actually um, on, and, and involved in different trials. But what were you doing in your new life? With if, if you know, oh, try to be, you know, be a, okay. what do you do? What do you do when you don't have any educational background? You don't have anything. There's no records of me anywhere. Right. What do you do? How do you go to school? I mean, how do you get a job? How do you do anything? Right. And basically, I had enough money when I left. I had several million dollars. And I looked at it like, okay, I can buy a couple of laundromats. I could buy some apartment buildings. I could do this. I could do that. And I did. And uh, would you say your happiness index has increased since you left that life? Are you a happier person oh, in yeah. the last 35 years oh, than you yeah. were the previous 35? <laughs> a thousand percent. A thousand percent. If someone didn't know anything about you and and was sitting next to you and you said, I had this life for X amount of years and now I've, I've lived this totally 
other life for the last three and a half decades. How do you reconcile that? Would you say, would you tell someone like, hey, you know, I was a, a good person living in a, and operating in a bad world? Or would you say that's just, that was just, that's what Chicago was. And I was just a kind of a, a victim of circumstance. What's your, how do you look at that no, part of your life? I wasn't a victim of circumstance. Everybody makes their own decisions. I made mine. And what I would say is that I did what I had to do of a nonviolent crime to stop murders. And it worked. That was me then. Now, I don't really care. I don't really care. Things have changed. But uh, that was the act I put up. That was what I had to do. And it was a, a tenuous act. I mean, I really, it was difficult in some ways because I had a personal life. I wore one hat for that. I had a, a, another uh, life with the outfit. I wore another hat for that. And I had a third hat that was, uh, you know, having to do with the FBI and U.S. attorneys. So I had to keep my reputation very much intact. I could not let the other hand know what the other hand was doing. Do you keep tabs at all on what's going on back home? Uh, not really. I, I do look around and I don't see the outfit being what it was. I don't even see it at all. Uh, some say they went into legitimate businesses. There are a few people around that I knew back in the day. Yep. And, and one just recently died, Mikey Swiatek. Um, he was involved in a lot of things. I knew Mike very well. Um, he was, uh, him and Joe had some ideas about uh, Flash because he always wore flashy jewelry and nice burglar. cars and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I didn't know that about him at the time. All I knew was he was, uh, uh, there was a lot of things I really didn't know at the time that I know now. I never knew Tony was involved in all those murders. If, if he was, I wouldn't have had him in my house. Yeah, what was he like to deal with on a personal level? Very happy, easygoing. I never heard him raise his voice. Um, but every time he came into town from Vegas, when he went out to Vegas, I was surprised. And then, you know, him and Irv Weiner were doing their thing. They had a Boeing 707 uh, that they bought. And they were they were actually flying back and forth. But um, then when he went out to Las Vegas, every time he came back to Chicago, all the other guys, outfit guys, would call my house. And they would say, is it okay to come over? Marshall Cofano always used to call me. Everybody, anybody that came over said, is it okay to come over? Not Tony. He would show up unexpectedly. He'd park his car a few blocks away over by Harris Pies on uh, Kedzie in uh, California. And he would just ring my doorbell. It'd be late at night or maybe 8 o'clock, dark. And, you know, that's, he would, we'd come in and say, you got any scotch? And we'd sit down and we'd start drinking scotch and talking. When he didn't come, when he came into town, he disappeared. Yeah. I knew at that moment, because he didn't stop and see me. First, before I forget, what did you think of the Pesci portrayal of him in, in uh, Casino? It's Hollywood. He wasn't like that in real life. He wasn't like that at all. Yeah, I heard he could lose his temper, but it wasn't as frequent as it was in the in the film. And then I heard the one thing, uh, the note I got from Frank um, uh, 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 Collada was that, um, who was pr in the movie was Frank Marino, played by Frank Vincent. Um, that he did not, was not a big uh, uh, cursor. And in the film, he's cursing all the time. Yes, and, and that's true. He was very articulate. He spoke very well. Um, he was happy-go-lucky. He was a very happy-go-lucky guy. He did have a Napoleon complex. He wore lifts on his shoes. <laughs> I, here's what I know from, um, about that last weekend. From my, from my research, and I was able to develop a pretty good source within his inner circle at the very, very end. Cause there were a couple of Detroit guys, um, that had gotten placed with him. Um, Spilatro did a lot of work with the, with the Detroiters and, um, there was, he worked with everybody, right? He worked with everybody. That's what his job was out there to keep things calm out there. Yeah. And, and, uh, so Detroit had a guy out, named Long Joe Bomarito that was in Vegas. He died in like 84. So they didn't have anyone out there. So they took the son of a Detroit mob capo who was in his 20s. I didn't have his button yet. And they sent him out to Vegas to kind of look after what was going on. In Their interest. Their interest. But then he would, but they 
specifically placed him around Tony. And this guy was Tony's kind of driver bodyguard for the last six months to a year. And this guy, and I, he told me this, but I also have this in, in FBI documents and records. Um, he was the one that took Tony to the airport and he was supposed to pick him up on Monday morning. <laughs> and he showed up at the airport on Monday morning and there was no Tony Spilatro getting off the plane. Right. That was very mysterious. Nobody saw it coming that I know of. I didn't see it coming. Had I seen it coming, I would have done something about it. Yeah. But they kept it very quiet. They used to, you know, everybody, they used a lot of people on that hit. In terms of uh, 2022, obviously it's, it's a shadow of what it was, but I'm not someone who believes just because there aren't as many indictments or there aren't as many bodies that they've just closed up shop. Uh, they've just they've adjusted and they've adapted to, to the times. I mean, there are if you look at the amount of bodies that have dropped in America in the last 22 years related to mob activity in every family, it's a, a modicum, a, a tiny little speck compared to. I mean, since 2000, if you want to count Ronnie Jarrett, who was shot in late 99 but died in 2000, you have four probably four outfit murders in 20, 22 years compared to the previous 20 years where you probably had 400. And I'm not exaggerating. No, I, I, I think they got the message. Part of it, though, is that the, uh, the hierarchy was gone. They, right. they chopped the head off the snake. And the little ones were easy to pick off, and they realized it. And so they said, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do this. There's one individual that I know of that was with Frank Schweiss on Alan Dorfman murder uh, over by the Hyatt Hotel. And um, when that happened, uh, that guy's still around. And uh, he's living on borrowed. I mean, he's old. Yeah. And um, he's older than I am. But um, I think they just cooled it and said, you know, all these other guys went to prison. We don't want to go. We've been to prison. We didn't like it. And everything is legal now. I mean, you've got the lottery. You've yep. got uh, marijuana. You've got riverboat gambling. You have everything legal. So why not invest in some of these buy, buy like uh, currency exchanges where you can uh, have a payday loan? Why not invest in some of those? It's Jimmy Iandino, allegedly. Why not invest? Why not invest in some uh, uh, fast food places, McDonald's, whatever. Open up your own stand, whatever. So the guys that I am been told that are are still kind of calling shots there. They're all OG guys. I don't believe that they're figureheads, but at the same time, I don't think they're the they're they're the boss of a organization that is anywhere or bosses of the organization that's anywhere near the strength or complexity or the reach that it was. But I don't believe that there are ten people waiting in line kicking up to them. Right. There is no boss anymore. Oh, you don't you don't think that Solly D and, and Jimmy Iandino and Albivina are kind of No, who would kick up to him? Oh, I mean, let's see. I could come back to Chicago and open up a bookmaking uh, operation and guess what? Nobody nobody bother me. So the people that are kicking up are have been kicking up for years and the other people they don't bother. I don't think there any, there is anybody kicking up anymore. There's nobody to kick up to. They retired. And the ones that are active are active in other things that have nothing to do with um, illegal businesses. They may use a little muscle every now and then, but not often. Usually it's personal or drugs. And you can find a number of them on Facebook, <laughs> which is a lot different than it, than it used to be. You really can, which is very embarrassing for them <laughs> yeah. and their parents. I mean, their parents turn around and look at them on Facebook and they say, what is my kid doing here? Yeah, I know. Well, Red, this was great. Let everyone know where they can find you, uh, where they can buy the book, where they can uh, consume your content. You can order my book autographed from me at redwemet.com, or you can buy it on Amazon, or any any bookstore will order it for you. Uh, but if it comes from me, it's autographed. And you can see me on Facebook. Um, you can see me on YouTube at uh, Red We Met. I have my own YouTube channel. And you can chime in on Wednesdays with uh, Adam and myself on my blog. Amazing. Red, this was a great interview. You've done it all. You've said it all. 
I want to have you back. I think there are a lot of things we can do with, uh, you know, with our brands kind of uh, going forward. And, and you know, we're, we're both at heart. I think we're both storytellers. We're people that love history. We love putting things into context. And uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. So, Red, uh, again, much, much obliged for Red giving us his time. You know, we talk about OGs all the time, and Red is definitely an OG. Please like, subscribe, follow everything Original Gangsters Podcast. As we've been telling you these last couple of weeks, we've got a lot, a lot in the hopper right now that we're preparing to, to roll out a whole new vision and version of the the OG podcast with a lot more bells and whistles that you're going to be able to consume us both video and audio and there's just going to be a lot more meat to, to the bone and, and uh, we're excited hopefully Red can jump on board and, and uh, we'll be promoting him and thank you so much for, for listening we'll be back next week I'm Scott Bernstein for Jimmy Bucciolato out out